Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I'm grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me. And today, I am honored to talk with David Dark about his brand new book, We Become What We Normalize. And the subtitle is What We Owe Each Other in in Worlds That Demand Our Silence. And so as you can probably tell by the book title, we're going to be in for a very uh, interesting uh, conversation today. Now, if you have been listening to the Learner's Quarter for a while, we don't create a... And and if you haven't been, that's fine too. But what we want to do is create a safe place to have difficult conversations. To have conversations where we don't necessarily have to agree, but we can engage in thoughtful dialogue uh, respectfully as well and we can learn about things that maybe we might not learn about uh, other places as well and that's particularly what we're going to get into uh, today now if you're a lifelong learner i would recommend that you also uh, check on my Substack as well to where i give recommendations for some of the best things that i am currently learning from Now, let me tell you a little bit about David, and then we're going to jump into our conversation. David Dark is an American writer and public intellectual, a frequent speaker and podcast guest. He is the author of several books, including The Sacredness of Questioning Everything, Everyday Apocalypse, The Sacred Revealed in Radiohead, The Simpsons, and Other Pop Culture Icons, and The Possibility of America. His writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Pitchfork, Paste, American Magazine, The Christian Century, and Religious News Service. He is also Associate Professor of Religion and Arts at Belmont University, and he currently lives in Nashville with his partner, the artist Sarah Dark. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, David, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you. Very grateful to be among you and with you. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, one of my one of my favorite questions to ask um, at the beginning of conversations and interviews is anytime that I'm talking with somebody who's created a work of art, I love hearing the story behind it of like, what's the thing that that triggered it or just got you thinking about this? And so you've written this book, We Become What We Normalize. And I would just love to hear, was there an event, was there a series of events that led you to go, wow, I need to start thinking about this topic and working on this topic or learning more about this topic? Absolutely. There is a series of events. Um, I would say that much of this book got started um, following the election of 2015. Mm-hmm. Um which was a surprise. I mean, the presidential election of 2015. Mm-hmm. And I teach at Belmont University. And um, I've been there for 10 or 11 years. I teach a first year seminar class, which is all freshmen. And increasingly at Belmont, increasingly in Nashville, we have a very diverse assortment of students. So um, when it was pretty well confirmed, I guess this would be 11-9-2015, that um, Donald Trump was going to be the commander-in-chief of the 
United States military. I had students who were excited about that. So 2015 or 2016? So <laughs> I guess you're right. Forgive me. So inauguration. No, that's okay. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, yeah. Well, am I right that it was 2015 that the election occurred and then the inauguration was 2016? Or do I have that I, wrong? I think the inauguration takes, would have been in seven. It would have gotcha. been in okay. 17. Okay. Forgive me. No, you're good. I'm yeah. So that election, November 11, nine, um, it was a surprise for many people. Yeah. And I had students who were excited about it. Um, but I also had students who were afraid and I had students who emailed me the day after the election saying, I'll be back eventually, but I can't sit in a room with, uh, people who are excited, um, because I'm gay or I'm Muslim or, um, I have undocumented relatives who I'm afraid are going to be deported. So navigating that in Nashville was interesting because um, I don't avoid, mm, I guess I'm encouraged by sub to try to avoid politics as an alleged topic. But my approach to that my entire adult life is that politics is just one word um, for how human beings organize themselves. I feel the same way about religion. Um, religion and politics, to my mind, are two words for one thing, both culture. Yeah. So I'd said from the get-go, even when I was teaching high school, that nobody is more or less political than anyone else. And um, to suggest that politics is a thing that happens outside of my own little hula hoop of influence is a moral evasion. So um, I had to lay some ground rules. Um if our class was going to proceed in um, both addressing the fact of the election of Donald Trump, um, but also addressing the fact of media, knowledge, claims to knowledge, opinion, research, all these things. Mm -hmm. And a question that arose in my classroom work is this, and it is a question that forms the entire book. Am I responsible for the lies I let other people voice in my presence unchallenged. And I probably repeat that question at every event increasingly, long before I even was moving forward with completing this book. It was a question that I found it helpful to voice in churches and book clubs and in the classroom. So I'm going to repeat the question. Am I responsible for the lies I let others voice in my presence unchallenged. Um, I don't mean to offer a once for all response to that question, but I do at 53, a white man with tenure in Nashville, I, I lean toward the positive response to that question. Um, though I know that bodily safety is a thing for some in particular circumstances. I know that for many, um, to challenge disinformation during Thanksgiving dinner, in one's gathering with family yeah. could risk um, being cut out from one's will or being punched in the face, or given the fact of domestic violence, one could risk, um, ah, yeah, I'm sorry to get heavy right away, but no, you're good. could risk being killed um, by differing with someone's passionately held opinion in these heady days. Now that was 2016, as you point out. Since then, we had 
an insurrection. We had the attempt to overthrow the results of another presidential election, and that's still on. Um, it's still on. It is still the situation. Mm -hmm. So I know people who have seats in the governor's mansion in Tennessee. I know people who hold the United States Senate seat. But if they themselves were to look into a camera and say Joe Biden won fairly, they would risk um, death threats if they haven't mm -hmm. gotten them already for not playing along with particular um, ideologies and such. So we become what we normalize mm -hmm. is a um, an aphorism that I find helpful. I would place mm -hmm. next to it, we become what we sit still for. We become what we abide. We become what we play along with. Mm -hmm. um, the book, however, I want to say is a very positive book. Oh, yeah. Because I start with myself and I start with all the ways that I succumb to reactivity and defensiveness and denial. When if I just give myself a few seconds, I can come up with a creative response to whatever somebody's coming at me with or whatever I'm dealing with. So it comes out of the classroom for sure, but it also comes out of interactions with people I've known for most of my life. Mm -hmm. And it comes out of being targeted by people who are upset with me for asking particular questions. And um, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, the, the book was completed a while back, but our current news cycles are such that the challenge of the book and hopefully the encouragement of the book are become more relevant every day. Mm -hmm. um, but I read a lot. I take notes on what I'm reading. And that's how, how my books come about mm -hmm. is eventually the things that I've written down um, while reading other people um, need to go on, need to be published either via Paste Magazine or America or Washington Post. I did a review for the Washington Post recently. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually those works, um, those words, I should say, and those sentences find their way toward a book proposal. And eventually I find a publisher and I guess I'm maybe four or five books in. That's kind of the routine. Mm -hmm. And um, a book tour, <laughs> a book tour occur occurs yeah. with latest one and and here we are yeah well even like the question that that you ask and that in there repeat so much is are we responsible for the lies that are told in front of us that's a question that is never going to go away yeah like, whether that be on like a national scale or a personal scale or anything like that yes and, and one of the things that i really appreciate about your book is is you just you dive into the context and you dive into the nuances of everything and you don't go like this is like one two three this is what you need to do in order to mm. respond yeah. to things because it's much more complicated than that it is but as and, and again i know that the question that i'm gonna ask i'm not looking for like a pat one two three but i am looking for like helping us put our arms around of like how do you go about speaking up in situations like with i guess it's like the the cliche thing of like either truth and love without sacrificing the truth, but also being direct, but being loving and caring and, and all of that. Yes. Yes. It, it is one context at a time. Um, in class, 
students say all kinds of things, um, sometimes against one another. And no matter what is said, um, I find that after decades, I suppose, of doing this work, I can come up with a way of affirming something or saying mm -hmm. yes and, which is kind of this improv technique. Mm -hmm. So there's usually something to affirm. Yeah, here, here would be one handy little saying, I never have to mistake a person for the position that they just staked out. Mm -hmm. And I can differ with a person's position. I can even find a person's position contemptible um, while still honoring the person. Mm -hmm. So I can have a student or somebody that I went to high school with or someone I'm speaking to in a bar or a coffee shop, voice an opinion, which they're staking out as a position. And if I can take it slow, I can respectfully affirm what I can, while also saying, I'm not trying to challenge your identity. I'm trying to challenge the position that you've staked out. Here's another one. Mm -hmm. I have feelings, and then I have thoughts. And then I form an opinion. And then maybe I stake out a position based on that opinion. Mm -hmm. And at any point, say I receive some data that questions the legitimacy of my position, I can back up, let it be an opinion. I can back up even further and let it be a thought. Yeah. And I can back up even further and say, I just have a feeling. So whenever I say I think, um, I need to acknowledge that I feel before I think. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody is more or less emotional than anyone else. And so I try to address the person without being condescending. I try to address the concerns behind the position. And so long as the person feels heard, not only can we have a conversation, we can have a friendship. We can have a relationship that um, doesn't, exactly overcome difference but holds difference mm -hmm. differently mm -hmm. and i think we go looking for differences i think we go looking for conversation because everybody everybody i know in some way so long as everybody's safe really does want to get into it really does want to have their ideas challenged because i think something deep within us um desires transformation um deeply so i try to avoid labels I try to avoid calling anyone a liberal or a conservative or a progressive. And I, I do a whole thing about labels because when you label me, you negate me. Um, a label is a costly mental shortcut to avoid the complexity of the other person. So if a person suspects that I'm honoring their complexity and respecting them as people in some way, a lot becomes possible. But on the shadowy part of that, it probably has been within the last five or six years that I've stopped agreeing to have coffee with just anybody. Mm -hmm. If somebody wants to have coffee with me, there's instances in which I have to find out who I'm getting before I agree to it. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you want to see happen here when we meet at Starbucks? And mm -hmm. sometimes the thing they want to see happen, <laughs> that I yeah, it gets complicated, but sometimes they want to have had coffee with me um, to claim having dealt with me in some way. 
and I don't want to be dealt with. I want to be talked to. I want to, um, I want to be a human being among other human beings. And that this is where powers, positions, um, things get really fraught um, when folks are trying to take someone else down a peg so as to avoid the truth of what they're telling them. Um, so I would say there's many, many ways to creatively respond to someone who has a difference with you. And, mm -hmm. I, and I do it every day. It, I, I have the advantage of being the the dom, the dominant one, the person in charge in the classroom. But anyone who's been in my classroom for even a little while, they see that I draw on the oppositional energy of those who differ with me in order to get a conversation going. It's like, how do we arrive at an actual disagreement so that we can contend with that? Mm -hmm. I think what happens within American society is we never land conflict conflict avoidance ends up being um so much of our suffering i think mm -hmm. why do you think we don't land like what do you think is getting in the way of us figuring out what the actual disagreement is as you mentioned thank you that's an excellent question i think we smooth over differences as well as conflicts and that there's a strategy of avoidance mm -hmm. um don't talk politics don't talk religion don't talk any of that. And I I think maybe homeostasis is the word. Or <laughs> we just try to keep it um at an acceptable level of dysfunction rather than acknowledging, say, the injustices that our tax dollars are sustaining. Um yeah, there there's avoidance, but there's also fear. So I would say too that one of the big words in the book is deferential fear. Mm -hmm. I put deferential in front of fear because it's always fear, but deferential fear is that fear whereby I hand over to somebody else my right and my ability to decide what needs to happen, who the enemy is, who's wrong. So we have all these little coded things, woke, critical race, all that stuff where people signal to others um, here's where I land and we're not going to talk about it. Or if you try to, um, there's going to be trouble. Mm -hmm. So through jokes, through drawings, through skits, through poems, through songs, I try to find um, something that'll expand the space of the talkaboutable between people. Whenever I'm in a group of people, and if I'm in charge, I'll say, okay, let's learn everybody's name by everybody saying a favorite movie. And if someone's willing to lay that card down, I like Harry Potter. I like Star Trek. Now we're in the one human barnyard of common culture. And if somebody likes Star Trek or Kendrick Lamar or Taylor Swift, we haven't introduced politics exactly, mm -hmm. but we have introduced the pop culture witness of, um, of others. And, and soap operas, I would say, function this way because mm -hmm. the soap opera or the Doctor Who episode, or the Marvin Gaye album, um, give us words, material, stories to kind of seep into to change the subject and to suddenly find ourselves talking about something of, of consequence. So there's just these sneaky affirmations, micro-affirmations, we might say, whereby we can trick ourselves into talking about something of substance when the default is to avoid substance so as to avoid conflict so nobody drives home 
upset. Um, book clubs are a lovely way to do this too, because if folks can agree to read a book, folks can get an appetite for loving hearing what Clarence is going to think of that book. He may hate it. I hope he hates it. I can't wait to hear how much he hates this book. And we can do that with movies as well. I have a friend who recommends films and I get upset with the film that he recommended. And I say, not only do I hate it, I think this film shouldn't exist. And then while I'm watering plants, he'll start telling me what he thought of the film. Mm-hmm. And I get talked out of it. It's like, you know what? You're right. I, I hated it. I was against the existence of this film. But now I understand via Convo um, why it's good that this film is out mm-hmm. there. It's not for everybody, but it scratches an itch for enough somebodies that it's good that it exists. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier that I want to touch on is defensiveness. Is yeah. any time that, we, that we're engaged in... Um, disagreements uh of, of various kinds we mm. get triggered defensiveness can start to rise in yeah. us and i'd love to hear what what has helped you like over the years and even like today mm. like lower your defensiveness so that you don't like just react to what's That's being right. said without pausing to even think about it oh thank you so i will answer the over the years and even today on the mm-hmm. over the years in the late 80s and early 90s i lived off of rush limbaugh yeah like he was truly my guy and i needed him or felt that i needed him because i felt like a dummy in my sociology and philosophy classes mm-hmm. i felt that my own belief in god was under attack um my own moral conservatism under attack And I would listen to Rush Limbaugh in the mornings and afternoons, and I would find myself repeating things that he said, um, and they made me feel strong. So we all go looking for people that will make us feel strong. But as a late teens, early 20-something, I needed more people than Rush Limbaugh in my head. So I would meet people who would hear me talk about Rush Limbaugh enthusiastically, and they would look at me, not totally disapprovingly but with a look of confusion and even in those days if i had a black friend or i would say even a female friend who wasn't all that into rush limbaugh or found him um horrible that slight look of oh i was with you on public enemy i was with you on suzanne vega but now you've brought up rush limbaugh and i'm not sure that i'm good with that Mm -hmm. i let myself be informed by that rather than made angry by that Mm-hmm. And eventually Rush Limbaugh kind of faded into the background. I needed more people in my head than Rush Limbaugh. And his espresso shot of self-righteousness, I eventually decided was not good for this white male's health. Um, since then, I I still get defensive, but there's poetry and there's jokes, and there are younger than me people who I know are entering into um, an awareness of the world that I won't go as deeply as they will by virtue of not having as long left in this world. So my students, I want to say, inspire me. Um, My daughter and my sons inspire me researching things that I haven't researched. And I try, instead of being reactive when they call me out, on privilege bigotry anything like that to be receptive um 
and responsive. So I do, hopefully at 53, I'm a lifelong learner and I don't front in the face of unflattering data. I, I do, I, I am reactive by nature because I wanna defend myself if I feel like I'm being accused of being militantly ignorant on some matter or other. But over food, drinks, give me a relaxed setting in which I feel respected and loved and looked after. And you can talk me out of any toxic conception I have of myself, others, and God. So I try to listen to the youth. I once heard that um, of parents, our their ceiling is our floor. Mm. So we've got our parents and they make it so far, but they don't make it as far as we will. And as a parent, I know that my ceiling is my kid's floor. And I try to take that very, very seriously where I take what they're telling me about my own behavior and my own ideas. And I try to be transformed by that rather than defending myself against the new. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, one of the ideas that you talk about in there is, um, or in the book is the holy work of situational awareness as yeah. well. I'd love for you to just elaborate a little bit more on that. And yes. just in general, like, like just going back to the book of like why why we don't speak up mm. i think part of it is because we're not paying attention we're not even seeing what's happening in mm -hmm. there and so yep. speak to you know the holy work of situational awareness and how we can get better at even just paying attention to that wow. work thank you the holy work of situational awareness i find my uh, one day i woke up with the words sounded like an rem lyric to me read the remedy, read the room. And I wrote it down. <laughs> I don't know what read the remedy means, yeah. Um, but I know what read the room means. It's like, look around. And I do for a living. Um, try, I, I tried to get um, teenagers to and early 20-somethings to encourage each other, to listen to each other. But often I'm telling them to read the room. Because if I have a student who says, well, the Bible's God's word, every word, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, that is your claim. And it's legit. Um, it is not a claim shared by the Muslim students in this room. Um, though there may be more agreement there than you realize. You would have to ask. Mm -hmm. So I am in front of 20 or so students. I'm trying to draw them out to posit things while also inviting them to be aware that the thing that they just said about homosexuality might land differently with the gay student or the trans student um, in the corner. So read the room, read the room, the holy work of situational awareness. It's also knowing my own context and figuring out what the invitation might be for me in my context so there was a once I, I can think of a faculty meeting that occurred in which one of my black female colleagues was um asked some difficult questions and that colleague um said i'm gonna say a sentence or two and then i'm gonna leave it to tenured faculty to respond to that question and i thought oh i'm it could be that i'm being invited um to say a little something that will land differently coming from me than it will from my black female colleague. I was being invited to read the room. I was being summoned into the holy work 
of situ situational awareness. So I went ahead and said some things. And then I went up to that colleague later and said, I was sensing that you were inviting me specifically to say something, to which you said, yes, I was. You received the spirit. Yeah. So it's um, yeah, figuring out what I'm called upon. I'm what I'm called to isn't what everybody else is called to. There's positions. The president of my university has a kind of power that is different from the power I have as faculty, which is different from the power that students have as students. So there's a fluidity to power. Bruce Banner, AKA the Incredible Hulk, says that, um, what did he say? Power, uh, oh, I wanna make sure I get it right. It was a particular issue. But I think he said power is dependent on context. And it really is. Bruce Banner understands that not every problem has a Hulk-sized solution. Mm -hmm. And we get to be precise and we get to choose our words carefully. And there's times when I just need to hang back. I may have all kinds of words running through my head, but it doesn't mean that I'm the person who needs to <clears throat> weigh in. I, When you asked about um, the series of events that led to the writing of this book, summer yeah. 2020 was a big one for me because I showed up for some Black Lives Matter protests. And I should say they were protests that are called Black Lives Matter protests, but that doesn't mean that the organization um, was behind it. It was just George Floyd summer. And a lot of people were showing up to address the extrajudicial killing of black people by law enforcement. I was ready to get arrested. I had a lawyer's um, number on my arm in case they took everything away. Mm -hmm. But I realized right away that if I got arrested, the headline, is Belmont professor got arrested. And my job was going to be more of um, a witnessing thing, mm -hmm. where when a law enforcement officer accuses an activist of being violent, I'm able to say on Twitter or elsewhere, I was standing behind that activist. That activist was completely committed to nonviolence. Mm -hmm. And the aggressor in this instance was the, the cop. Mm -hmm. um, so that work Holy work of situational awareness is the work of witness, of bearing witness to what's going on and making one's own witness in the world, which is what we're always doing. We are always making our witness. If I like something on Instagram, that is a little granular vote move that adds to a culture of affirmation concerning a particular thing. All culture is granular and we get to proceed with courage and care and curiosity, um, whether we're typing on our computer or pushing our phone or talking to someone somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, the the analogy that came to my mind and, you know, I'd love to give it to you and then, you know, you can, you can bounce off of it, is it made me think of like television and, and movies is that sometimes our role in the in the situational awareness is understanding that, hey, we are, we're the leading actor mm. in this situation. Sometimes right. we're the supporting actor and sometimes we just have a guest role and sometimes we're behind the scenes and we're That's not, right. we're not even visible in that. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, I will note that um, Brian Eno, the musical producer who um, did a lot of Bowie's best work, Talking Heads, U2, he describes, um, co-wrote uh, Once in a Lifetime and Heroes. So those are kind of two pop culture 
artifacts that are essential to well to pop music the the best stuff but anyway brian eno said that wherever there's a genius there is a scene that supported that genius whether it's martin luther king jr or miles davis picasso taylor swift and so yeah that which we think of as the lone genius Mm-hmm. is actually the work of a scene of people, a community of people who bought the stuff or did an art exhibit or invited people over or inspired. If you listen to early Bob Dylan, it's all covers. Um, yeah, it's totally covers. That And he is covering people within the scene that he was drawing from. So Eno says, um, wherever there's a genius, there's a senius. S-C-E-N-I-U-S. Yeah. So when I think of culture, I think senius, exactly what you're referring to. Yeah. Arrested Development, Seinfeld did not just come out of one person's head. It's a team effort. And somehow our our insecurities or I, th- I think our fear in a way where we want to say of Rosa Parks, she just got tired one day and wouldn't, wouldn't move back. It's, no, she trained at a place called Highlander Folk School fellow called Miles Horton, um, in the work of creative nonviolence. So I should say the book is also about creative nonviolence, which a book is an act of creative nonviolence. A podcast is an act of creative nonviolence. And it isn't this rare thing that happens. It's something that's happening in a million or billion ways all around the world constantly. Armed force is not the driver (laughs) ultimately in human history creative nonviolence is um yeah so just tying that to the seniors business yeah you know one of i want to read one of one of my favorite quotes from the book and just have you bounce off of it um you write you say thinking and acting critically and independently assuming responsibility for our imaginations our own sayings and doings can feel too burdensome, too triggering, and too costly. Playing along to get along can feel easier, but it's no way to live. We become what we cave to, and we must be very careful about what we cave to. Mm. And I think the thing that just resonates so strongly for me is that I think sometimes the objection to to speaking up or to doing an active creative uh, nonviolence is that it's too hard. Mm-hmm. It's way too hard. It's too taxing. It's too burdensome. And what I love that you do in there is you go, I know. Well, <laughs> we have to do this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm I've I wrote it, but I haven't read it. Yeah. I, I read I did read it out loud for audio, <laughs> but for you to hone in on that is quite the gift to me. Um quite the gift to me for you to note that I'm noting that it's hard. I feel it in my bones. I've experienced it. Um, But we have to, because we become what we cave to. Mm-hmm. We all cave to something. So we need to, but we get to make a choice on what we're going to cave to. Yeah. I also want to flip it a little and note that the psychic burden of playing along to get along, of living in fear. I ultimately think that that psychic burden is heavier than the alternative. That the psychic burden 
of just doing what you have to do mm -hmm. um, to not risk anything is is actually a form of hell, is a kind of dumpster fire. And all that hell has to go somewhere, which is why it shows up in these suddenly reactive moments. I think that the easier life is the responsive, cultivating, thoughtful life. Mm -hmm. But it feels harder given the demands, the pressures, all of this. But I think, um, I mean, a weird thing that I tweeted one time, um, <laughs> it got a lot of responses. I said something like, um, at least I was true to my political party said no one on their deathbed ever so i'm trying to move toward the peace of mind of not having been overly useful in the strategies of abusive people mm -hmm. it could be that being a little bit useful in the strategies of abusive people is inevitable mm -hmm. but we can we wake up every morning with the power of deciding what we will no longer play along with, what we will no longer consent to and normalize. And it's never just a all at once and then everything changed. But as Christina Edmondson says, and I quote her in the book, decisions create culture. Mm -hmm. And we can make different decisions to begin to make slightly different culture all around us. And we can note all the ways um, that others have been here before. There are, I'll think specifically of Nashville, where a kind of Christian supremacy and a kind of white supremacist terror status quo has worked among many white Christians, not worked. It has been the situation um, for decades. And yet not all churches have played along with that. I think of Jimmy Carter, if we can go down to Georgia. Jimmy Carter was an evangelical. My mother um, is a Jimmy Carter evangelical. And these folks who've been here before, we think of the nonviolent movement of America, James Lawson, John Lewis, Rosa Parks. Yeah, and, and yeah, I don't know how to segue into this, but just the black church. Mm -hmm. often when people say evangelicals it's like okay i think you mean white evangelicals because any black church has been looking after its community with the resources it has all along so sometimes what we're talking about is whiteness sometimes what we're talking about is uh, a kind of chumocracy which is powerful um but it isn't the norm everywhere so I'm I'm rambling at this point, but I'm noting that those who have refused um, to normalize abuse, bigotry, racism, they're there is they've been here all along. They just aren't on the news or they're passed over in many ways. In Atlanta, I was watching the Cop City protest, recent Cop City protest, and uh, there's a woman there and I look her up and she's. She's been at it right there at Atlanta for a long time. I'm ashamed I can't remember her name, um, but there was a whole Wikipedia entry. All this to say, beloved community has been among us all along in um, in churches and synagogues and mosques and libraries and civic clubs and things. So often when we can feel drowned out um, by the very successful disinformation business model that holds sway, 
if we just poke around, we'll see that there have been unfamous people all around us holding it down and waiting for us to show up before they pass. Um, but to loop it back, I think ultimately the psychic burden of playing along with abuse um, is heavier than all of the little ways that we can resist it. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to hear, and I know that we've, um, or you've, you've mentioned several or alluded to several, what's, what's a, a thing that we're normalizing that you wish that, you know, Christians or Americans or just take it however you want to, that you wish that more people were speaking up about this. You wish that people were paying attention to this and not normalizing it. Mm, well, there's so many things that I, <laughs> I know. In barnyard. <laughs> um, a big one um, is the climate crisis, mm -hmm. which I believe can be meaningfully addressed, but we're just worn out. We lost trains. Mm. Uh, whenever I see train tracks, I was walking on some old where trade tracks were here in Ohio recently. And I thought, mm -hmm. wow, one used to be able to take a train here, a passenger train. Now, um, the cooking of the planet is not inevitable. Um, injustice is not natural. It's not an accident. It's orchestrated. That's one of the mm -hmm. lines in the book that I picked up in my consideration of Anthony Ray Hinton. Incarceration, the caging of people especially nonviolent criminals. Um, there's a military industrial entertainment incarceration complex, which is crushingly well-funded and we don't have to normalize it. We can note that this isn't the way it needs to be. I, I will speak of um, government, state of Israel, Hamas conflict by noting where some of my students are. And I had a, overheard a student the other day say, um, I'm boycotting Starbucks. And I said, why? And my student said, I'm boycotting Starbucks because Starbucks supports Israel. And I said, may I push you a little on the way you just put that? And the student said, yes. And I said, you can say that you're upset with Starbucks because it's normalizing the abusive behavior of Benjamin Netanyahu. You don't don't say you don't want Starbucks to support Israel because that does open you to the charge of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. I I would never. Yeah, Israel is a concept. The state of Israel is a concept that is younger than my than my mother. So mm -hmm. we can we can get particular with these mm -hmm. things. Um but it's a challenge. And if we're trying to generate ad revenue or hold public office, we sometimes run away from specificity and nuance in mm -hmm. order to skip straight to the tagline. So I want to memorial, I want to, yeah, I want to memorialize and normalize nuance in our exchanges. Mm -hmm. So that one can say, um, Palestinian lives are not disposable. Or one can say, I hear no distinction between the cry of Israeli infants and Palestinian infants and just sit there with it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I want the normalization of slowing the tape. I want the normalization of, oh, well, when you say that, you mean this. No, <clears throat> that's not what I meant. May I say it again? May mm -hmm. I put it differently? Why, yes, of course, rather than, no, I know what you were doing. Mm -hmm. So there's that knee jerk um, what Hanif has called interpersonal cruelty, where in our own um, sense of powerlessness, we decide that we can cancel somebody 
and we enjoy that. So we go at it and uh -huh. we, um, yeah, there is a normalization of interpersonal cruelty, both within um, social media content and the way we talk about people. I want to normalize championing um, Sinead O'Connor, who was bullied into despair, it seems to me, her entire adult life. And I want to say that she overcame it over and over again. But I'm recalling, this is zooming back, um, yeah. in the 80s when she tore the picture of the Pope, that was the headline on SNL. But she said something after singing a Bob Marley song tearing the picture of the Pope and she looked right into the camera and she said, fight the real enemy. That was the title of her performance piece, if you like. Mm -hmm. But what was remembered was the tearing of the picture of the Pope. What was overlooked by most was that that very picture of the Pope was on her mother's wall when she was a child and she was a victim of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. So the idea of, oh, she tore a picture of the Pope. She hates the Pope. No, she said, fight the real enemy, which is which is fear, mm -hmm. which is projection of our own trauma on others. So I want the normalization of looking at the whole witness, even the five minute witness or so of mm -hmm. Sinead O'Connor in that moment, so that we're not turning people into cartoons, ourselves and others that are easily dismissed. Mm -hmm. So I want to argue for the de-cartoonifying of human beings mm -hmm. in our mm -hmm. popular discourse rather than the quick, easy, profitable, click-driven um, cutting people down to the size of our own imaginations. Mm -hmm. Well, go going back to that interaction that you had with that student of them being really clear about what their point is, it, it reminds me of what we were talking about earlier of being clear about what do I actually disagree with this person about? And it just, it almost feel like it completed like the two halves for me yes. of like, if we're trying to understand, then we need to be really clear about where the other person, what the actual other person's point yes. is. Yes. And if we're communicating our ideas, we need to be very clear about what our point is or yes. what's the thing that we're putting out there and not the generalities. Yeah, That's right. So, the generalities are easy. Um, and ultimately they're harder because they possess our minds. And we're punching at ghosts and projections rather than addressing human beings. So Republicans, the government, all that kind of stuff, I write over and over again on the, the papers that I'm commenting upon, be more specific. When you say they, who are you referring to? When you say Israel, who are you referring to exactly? When you say the Palestinians or the Arabs, gonna need you to be more specific so we can do that yeah. and we can model it and we can insist on it to kind of go all the way back to am i responsible for the lies i let other people voice in my presence unchallenged if i'm in relationship with people i can ask them to clarify um their use of words without it being an attack mm -hmm. so one method that i yeah. use when somebody says something horrible is, would you mind if I ask you a question about what you just said? Mm. To which, before I've weighed in, they get to say, oh yeah, of course, of course. yeah." So that they don't feel punched. And of course, if somebody says, I do mind, I don't want you to question me. <laughs> like, oh, okay, now yeah. we know. Now we know what we're dealing with. When you talk 
you don't want a response. You want to monologue freely and dialogue is not part of what you want to see happen past mm -hmm. the turkey yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. so it's it's interesting um yeah. but it's just all these little ways that we can take it slow and invite ourselves and others into a genuinely human situation mm -hmm. okay one one topic that i would be i would regret if i didn't ask you about from the book is uh robot soft exorcism would yeah. you mind unpacking that idea a little happy bit happy to happy to um robot yeah robot soft exorcism which i want listeners to know they can listen to a song called robot soft exorcism by the band thrice um i was overjoyed when a five that's a five-year-old twitter thread now it is my robot soft exorcism thread when thrice expressed an interest in writing a song drawing from the imagery of the thread and i said yes please so anyone who wants to can if you type in robot soft exorcism it'll strike take you straight to youtube and you get a song and the lyrics of the song are remarkable i can quote them there's another way to face the unforeseen you don't have to stay inside of that machine so i'm going to do it again there's another way to face the unforeseen you don't have to stay inside of that machine. So that's a little lyric to place next to Robot Soft Exorcism. And the lyric is a bit of a double. It is both imagining a human being who's about to be crushed by a giant robot, Coca-Cola, Google, um, Tesla, the United States military, um, whatever. The robots are principalities, organizations, institutions. Um, and the human being um, who's about to be crushed by the robot looks up at the head of the robot and sees in the eye socket of the robot a human being to whom the human being on the ground cries out, stop or come out. And then the one in the eye socket, it's me, I have my robots, um, is moved and decides, okay, maybe there's a lever I can pull that can spare this human being death, destruction, harm, or maybe I can come out of the robot. So come out of your position, come out of the armored vehicle of your power and privilege and be a human being among, among human beings. Also, <clears throat> the robot soft exorcism is somebody in a suit and tie who thinks that all of their identity is tied up in the fact that they're the CEO or the assistant or whatever it is to whatever the company might be. Robot soft exorcism is pulling the machine out of the person who's been possessed by that system, by the energy of the Republican Party or the Democrat Party or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So robot soft exorcism names creative nonviolence, all the different methods. And the big one that that I draw the most energy and inspiration from is TNN Square, 1989. A human being who may be dead or may not be successfully stopped a big line of tanks, 18 or 19 of them, that were about to go in to kill protesters. And those protesters were killed. Let's not, oh, we still don't know a lot of what 
happen because the Chinese government doesn't want us to. But there was one man with a briefcase who stood in front of a tank. And when the tank tried to go around him to avoid killing him, he stood in front. They, you had this little dance <clears throat> of the tank did not want, or the tank driver, I should say, did not want to kill the fellow human being. And you even have a moment in that there is the image of human beings standing in front of tank. But if you watch the video, you've got the human being climbing on top of the tank and talking to the tank driver. Mm -hmm. This too is robot soft exorcism, but it, it happens very dramatically when people die facing down armed violence. But it also um, happens when we talk people out of their own reactive, defensive position. Sometimes, um, oh goodness, around the world in nonviolent protest with corrupt governments, we often have armed men laying down their arms and joining the protesters. So robot soft exorcism is just this weird little tripling of words to name all of these things that we, we can do. And um, in the robot soft exorcism theory chapter in the book, I have examples, which includes skits and music and plays. And I um, can't recall if I put this in here, but but I think it occurred when um, Mike Pence attended a production of the Hamilton musical. It, it is in there. Yep. Okay. And at the end, um, the cast of the Hamilton musical addressed Mike Pence. Of course, Donald Trump hopped on Twitter to suggest it was inappropriate, but to Mike Pence's credit, he said, all's fair in, in theater. Um, I'm not going to deny them the right to address me just before I become vice president. So there's there, there remain all kinds of moves. We can fold our arms in the middle of a meeting. We can shake our head when someone's saying something that we know isn't true. And they can say, well, why are you shaking your head? And we can say, do you want to know? Okay, and now we go. Now we go. Mm -hmm. So there, there are myriad moves for us. And part of the job, I think, is to remind each other that there's more than one way out of a horrible mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. Well, I got a couple of the things I want to ask you about. But before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity to talk about anything that we haven't covered that you want to mm -hmm. make sure that we talk about and cover. Okay. Um, yeah, I want to say get this book. Yeah. Like, so I honestly believe that um, I, I'm happy with all my books, but I think this one is a kind of toolkit um, for living a more, well, to being loving and confrontational. Um, and by confrontational, I mean confronting ourselves first and then confronting others. Mm -hmm. So it, it is a kind of call, um, a toolkit, a descriptive journey in the work of overcoming our own fear. Mm. Um, I'm not done <laughs> with that. I'm contending with fear. I'm still held by fear in so many ways. But I, I think that this book can expand the space of the talkaboutable. So I wanna encourage people to, to find it and I want to encourage people if if they get into it to promote it because that is kind of how this works. And mm -hmm. and it need not cost one any cash. You can order it from a library. Um, yeah, order it from your library, please. Um, and I guess I'll throw in too that that um, 
Yeah, no, I think that I think the book is its own thing. Yeah. And and I and I'm trying to make an argument for it. Yeah. Well, a couple of other things about the book that I want to ask about is I'd love for you to elaborate on this quote to love a person is to love a process. Yeah, that um that is about self-compassion and self-respect and self-care. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to realize, well, John Stewart, not famously, but he once said when he was hosting The Daily Show, could have been a writer who gave him this line. Yeah. He said, um, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if you hate yourself, maybe leave your neighbor alone for a while, <laughs> which is just really, really funny because it it draws on how when I do hate myself and I do hate myself sometimes, mm-hmm. um, I I need to go do some internal work. Mm-hmm. Um, I need some time alone. I need to um, go on a walk. So to love a person is to love a process immediately. To love a self is to love a process. Um, and to love a person is to love a process. And that helps me when I am angry, say, with a former president or a pundit or a governor, um, one of my little prayers when I'm upset with someone, even people that I know who I think are trying to bring me down, um, I'll say, may fill in the blank, no joy in the root of joy, may fill in the blank, be delivered from suffering in the root of suffering. May John Smith, no joy in the root of joy, May John Smith be delivered from suffering and the root of suffering. If I can say that, I can get free of enmity. Mm-hmm. If I can truly wish my alleged enemy well, I can get free. And I mentioned that in regard to process because they are a process. Back to the who am I going to sit down with? Um, I can wish everyone well, but it doesn't mean that I have to sit still for everyone's process. Mm-hmm. If someone wants to have coffee and all they're going to do is tell me how awful I am or how bullying I am or something, um, I can let them work that out (laughs) until they're ready to approach me as an equal or as a fellow human being. Um, So to love a person is to love a process as a, it is a kind of mantra, um, both for myself and others that helps me. I, I think when I react, there's almost a kind of reactivity that settles in as a form of toxicity. And I, I speak and behave in a toxic way because all that reactivity is kind of built up within me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all, it's a way of coping, but because I do believe another saying is that a toxic, and I just voiced this out loud in front of my wife, Sarah, one time I said, does that sound right to you? And she said, yeah. So I just started repeating it. Yeah. A toxic personality is a traumatized personality. Mm-hmm. We all experience trauma. This doesn't mean that we're all inevitably toxic, but a toxic personality is a traumatized personality is one way that when I look at someone like Donald Trump, I can see the wounded child within the Trump suit and know that that he is living, it, it seems to me, respectfully, in a kind of psychic hell mm-hmm. where he tries, it seems to me, that when people give him, when I give him the steering wheel of my own imagination, I reduce the size of my own life to his sphere. And I do think that's what 
practically everyone in the Republican Party has done right now because they're letting the bully spirit that is bullying Donald Trump himself bully them too. Um, because we do live in a day. I mean, just, I, I don't want to timestamp this too much. Yeah. But in our Speaker of the House thing, there were those who almost voted for Jim Jordan and said, you know, I was going to, but then someone threatened to kill my family if I didn't. So I'm not going to vote for Jim Jordan. So we, we have that. It isn't, I wonder if people are threatening. I wonder if Republicans are being threatened with death if they don't play along with particular things. Okay, you don't need to wonder. We, we know. Mm-hmm. It's not headline news. It kind of sank to the bottom of the internet right away. But we know that people are being threatened, um, that if they vote their conscience, they or their families could be killed. So we live in a day in these United States, home of the brave, where the active suppression of your own moral conscience is the ticket of holding power mm-hmm. within a particular party. Um, so it's real. <laughs> and to love a person is to love a process. Yeah. So when I'm asking somebody to show a little courage, um, if I'm asking a millionaire or billionaire Republican to show more courage, I get to understand that they may have been threatened with with death by someone. Um, Elon Musk even um, owns Twitter, but his partners in the owning of Twitter are the Saudi royal family. And um, Prince... uh, I'm not going to remember. I'm not going to be able to remember the name. But that prince we know um, had the journalist Khashoggi um, killed and dismembered. So even there, I'm sure Elon Musk feels safe. No. Well, I'm sure Vladimir Putin feels safe. No. Who feels safe? I'm, this is going to be a weird one, but my son once asked me. Um, over coffee one morning he was maybe eight years old he said you know those cantina those musicians in the cantina in star wars and i said yeah and he said you think they're just doing what they think they have to to survive and i said yeah (laughs) they are so is everybody yeah um there's a lot of cantinas in this world that if i do this am i safe um, so I, I take that straight to the top of whoever it is we want to say is the most powerful person in the world. Um, think it through. People are under a lot of pressure and a person is a process mm-hmm. and, um, and it's tricky. Yeah. The times are tough. Yeah. Well, the last thing that I, uh, want to ask you about is a, it's a quote from somebody that you quote in the book, and then I love the tag that you add on to it, and it's from Fanny Howe, and uh, they write, a dream often undermines the narratives of power and winning, and I love the very next sentence that you say, we desperately need such dreams. As oh, we close, wow. would you mind just elaborating on that? I sure would. So dreams are um, dreams are real. Dreams are data. So you don't have to believe in God to know that there is data in dreams or to believe that there's data in dreams. That which I do not process in waking life, I process in dreams. Mm-hmm. So I consciously, if I have a, a difficult thought, 
I try to deal with that thought while I'm awake because I know it's going to come at me in my dreams. Dreams are their own thing. I will say, um, quoting Jeanette Winterson, the novelist and nonfiction writer, um, she said, I believe the mind wants to heal itself. And I, I agree with that. I think, and I think that's everybody's mind, that there's a kind of integrity because the mind is part of the body. Um, and we could speak of the unconscious. I won't go too far into the unconscious, but the mind wants to heal itself and, and talking about our dreams. Um, oh, and I think, oh, I'm going to throw in you two in their song, Atomic City. Um, it is a, it's the new U2 song. It is said, if you dream, if your dreams don't scare you, they aren't big enough. Hmm. And I, I thought that was a pretty profound line. But we hmm. we need new dreams tonight. Um, we need to pay attention to our dreams. We need mental health. We need mental wholeness. And um, the mental health crisis in our world, that well, the personal is universal. So what we're doing to the planet can't be separated from what we're doing to ourselves we're all one human being and um we need more courage in taking our dreams seriously and we need um well we need more art i'll throw in brian eno again he said art is that which makes us feel mm -hmm. we need more art so that we can feel more love ourselves more love the world more so that we'll stop destroying ourselves and the world. So this kind of gets back to the feeling function. There's a suppression of the feeling function, especially among men with particular <laughs> fantasies. Another line from the book, um, white uh, male fantasies die hard. White male fantasies die harder. So this denial of the feeling function, which is what I think we're looking at, in a lot of ways, when we watch Donald Trump erupt on the screen, it's acknowledge your, find the places you are digging the dirt. I've quoted Peter Gabriel now, find the places you got hurt. And because what we do with our hurt, what we do, what we do with our pain is what we will have done with our lives. Hmm. So I would, I would tie dreams to pain in so many ways and kind of holding out the fact of our suffering and finding ourselves among our fellow sufferers rather than erecting defenses and and um um oh, I, I think of the border i think of the pictures of elon musk in a cowboy hat on the border uh looking at migrants on the border and i put that up on my substack and said um <laughs> i can't recall if i said this to students or on the substack but I said, everyone in this photograph is an asylum seeker, hmm. including Elon Musk and the elected official that he's with. So that asylum asylum seeking in dreams and in real life, we're, we're looking for a place to live. We're looking for shelter. And um, <clears throat> we get to be more neighborly and loving of ourselves and others in our seeking of shelter and sustenance, I think, is, is the job. Mm-hmm. Well, David, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get the book. We become what we normalize. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, until Elon charges for it, I am available on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I can say the moment that it even costs $1 to do it, I'm out. I hope I can still access my archive. 
Um, I'm on um, Threads, <clears throat> J. David Dark. I'm on Blue Sky, David Dark. And Substack is the big one. And it's a free subscription. And uh, if you subscribe to Dark Matter, you get everything. Um, of course, you have to look in your inbox to see the latest <laughs> one. But Substack is it. And if you, I, I teach at Belmont, you can find my email on the Belmont website. And I'm, I love talking about things. If, if anybody wants to bring me out to talk, I do that. Um, I'm a pretty cheap date in that regard. Um, and I crave back and forth. So if you address me on any of these um, platforms, um, I'm probably going to reply within a day or two. Awesome. This is David Dark of Nashville speaking. <laughs> uh well david i know uh i just want to say thank you thank you so much for being on the podcast today thanks for um the great conversation and just thank you for doing the work and for sharing it with all of us it's a compulsion i enjoy it and i thank you for noticing So coming out of that conversation, here's a couple of things that I'm still thinking about. One is, and we talk about this all the time on the podcast, but that we need to pay attention to, to what we don't understand. We need to pay attention to what's happening around us. And it's just, that is a task that I think is becoming more and more difficult for us. But paying attention requires slowing down. It requires being aware of tuned in to what's happening. The other thing is that to love a person is to love a process. And that we don't necessarily all get it right. In fact, many times that we get it wrong. And we need to give the grace if we think that, especially whenever we think that that person should be further along, that they're in process as well, just as we are. So those are a couple of things that I'm thinking about from this conversation. If you enjoyed this, again, you can find more uh, resources that I recommend on my Substack, And... Yeah, I uh, and also uh, please subscribe to the podcast as well. And I think that's all that I have for today. So I want to say thank you to uh, Say Massey for creating this music for the podcast. Thank you again to David for, me, for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening to all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.